it costs a lot in terms of energy. Probably a small country is the total usage. The amount of energy that's consumed is staggering. Bitcoin detractors haven't done their homework. When you go and you look at places around the United States, you see companies like Great American Mining who are literally capturing gas flaring and on site, they're turning it into Bitcoin mining power. Bitcoin has this enormous contingent of really, really smart, sophisticated people. We became experts mining Bitcoin off of flare gas. So this is very much a viewpoint of like what the future should look like. How dare you? Wes Selner, very popular on the Gamcast circuit. Uh, a lot of people loved the first episode we did. In the first episode, we said we were going to do a series where we go through topics in the oil and gas industry, particularly that have to pertain with uh, actually producing and maintaining well pads. Today, we're going to talk about horizontal versus vertical drilling, choking wells, and decline curves. How the hell are you doing? Doing well. How are you, Marty? Doing well. Very excited for this conversation. Excited to learn. You've got notes in front of you. You've prepared thoroughly for this. Uh, we've already recorded like 10 minutes of a podcast. So I said, all right, we have to hit record. I'm going to throw it to you. I'm the idiot here. I'm looking to learn more about these particular topics. What do we need to know, myself and anybody who may be listening to this episode about drilling wells, particularly the difference between vertical drilling and horizontal drilling. We'll start there. Yeah, I'll predicate the statement in that I'm not a downhole person. So I'm a surface guy, not not quite downhole people. So I may say things wrong, but this is kind of my understanding of horizontal and vertical wells. So essentially you've got conventional wells. What you would do is you drill a vertical well down into the formation, right? You'd get into the play and then you do some sort of completion strategy, right? Now you are fixed in how much um, play exposure you have in that well based on how thick, thick the formation is, right? So the whole idea behind a vertical vertical well is you're, you, you have that fixed part, fixed exposure. Now with a horizontal well, you can increase that, right? So now you can take that, that spacing and now extend it out in the horizontal direction because the formation keeps going out, right? From a central spot, but it only, goes, it only has so much vertical, each individual formation, right? And that's where the oil and gas is at. So the whole idea behind a shale well and, and other horizontal wells is you can increase your exposure to hydrocarbon, hydrocarbon bearing rock by extending the well out horizontally versus vertical. Now, drilling a horizontal well is a technological feat. Um, it's been, the technology has been around for a long time, especially in, in the offshore area, but it's, it's been relatively new onshore. It just was hard to uh, justify the cost because drilling a horizontal well costs more than drilling a vertical obviously um it's a lot i mean once you get into the lateral it's a little bit slower there's a lot more things that could fail more things that have to be engineered into the design for drilling that and a lot of it's uh, been trial and error over the years to figure it out so essentially you have you know vertical well you drill it straight down hit the formation you'll case it then complete it and then put your tubing in and everything else and you'll flow the well, right? On the uh, horizontal line, you'll do the same kind of idea. You'll um, drill a vertical well and then you'll uh, drop a plate down there and you'll have your kickoff. It'll kick out into the horizontal and keep drilling. And then what you try to do is you try to keep that well in the formation as long as possible. 
so you have as much exposure. So the geologist is looking at the, the cuttings and making sure, hey, we didn't bounce out of zone or we didn't bounce up. And so it's kind of really hard when you think about it. Um, drill, drillers are, drillers know it's a lot better than I do. But as you get that well down, um, it'll have a tendency, it doesn't really want to stay in zone, it wants to bounce up and you got to keep it down. So you got to keep weight on bit and all that stuff. So pretty interesting stuff. There's um, the newest thing that's kind of been out for probably less time, 20 years is like mud motors. So you can actually put a, there's a, a motor on the end of the drill string. And then that rotates just the end of the bit versus the entire string. So that's been a huge technology. It's a lot of horizontal drilling to become a lot more successful. And even different strategies on like whether you case the lateral or you don't case the lateral and um, all that all plays into your kind of trial and error, figure out what works best, how do you keep your costs low, but production high, right? And your EOR is high. That's ultimately what you want to do is you want to drill a well, minimize your cost, but also maximize production. And so you got to try to find the, the optimal point between those two. You know, you don't want to, you could drill a well that'll have huge recoveries, right? But if it costs you a fortune to produce it, you're not going to stay in business. So it's kind of leveraging those two things and figuring out what um, what works. That's been the cool thing about shale is it's it's been, I call it little shale factories, right? You essentially you try different things on on drilling, on completions, on facilities, and you, you do all these different little um, step out tests, right? And, and you keep compiling all this data and then you mine the data and figure out what's the kind of the optimal point. <clears throat> And you learn stuff as you go too, right? You'll drill, um, the newest thing is like drilling these ultra long laterals that are over two miles, upwards of three miles in length. And, and the different things you learn along, learn along the way too is really interesting. Um, you know, you show up with the wrong size coil tubing unit, you can't drill out the last 2000 feet of the well after you completed it and then it sands out on you. So you actually can't produce that segment of the well. So you learn all these things as you go along and kind of evolve the process and improve it and you just it's continual learning process and uh and a lot of that's kind of stored in the people too right the, the people oh, i tried that on this and such and such a pad or with such and such a company and it didn't work there but that same technology that worked well in the bakken could work somewhere else or it might not work because everyone's every formation zone's a little bit different um every basin has a slightly different equipment different people different thoughts it's, it's really interesting interesting to uh, kind of cover it the one uh one thing that's kind of interesting too is you can uh, you can drill multilaterals too. So you can, in theory, drill down, land your, um, and then do your first kickoff into your first formation, and drill another, keep drilling on the vertical, and then land in a second formation below it. Um, that's really important. Like if you have stacked formations, that, because like you go to a Permian, they have five to seven zones you could land in, in theory. But the one huge risk with doing that is you have a lot more. Um, your well design becomes a lot more complicated. A lot more things can fail while you're while you're drilling the well, and then the the actual life of the well after it's been completed and producing your workovers get more complicated. So, while that's a new technology that's being used here and there, it's it's still evolving. I'd say um, we'll see where it ends up. Now that that's been more common in the conventional industry where they will drill you know what they call multilateral branches and whatnot and so they'll actually land a whole bunch of wells in one vertical uh, you'll see especially up in alaska they'll use like coil tubing units to drill wells and they'll um they'll try to keep like a six thousand six thousand foot lateral and they'll drill all all these wells out and this is super important in like places like alaska where you're on permafrost right so you can't have a large pad footprint so you need to maximize your recoveries from one vertical so you can minimize your on pad footprint fascinating so 
with those verticals that are going those lateral wells that are going through multiple formations in the same spot like in the permian so there's potentially seven layers is there like risk of the content of the the oil and gas being different between those layers and mixing them as you're doing that as well is that one of the the hurdles you get yeah it all depends on how your um, your lease is set up if you have uh some leases you only have you only lease down to a certain footage death wise so like you only you only i lease seven thousand and above right so i can draw all those and so there's different mineral interests and all those things need to be factored in gets a little more complicated too on when you do your doing your well testing uh, i know the reservoir engineers love to see the numbers Wait, look, do the there, look backs and, there's different mineral rights centers at different depths it's possible yeah depending on the state it's pretty uncommon but um yeah, some states have federals. Feds have certain minerals and states and whatnot. That's Landmen cool. are probably rolling their eyes right now as I say that. But <laughs> well, I guess take a step back. Like, what is the pre-drilling process like? And yeah, another question I had: like, would you start drilling a vertical well and then turn it into a horizontal well if you think you go horizontally? Or like you said, I got another question I have. On top of that, I'm bombarding you right now. It's like, what do you what do you think? I don't know if you know this off the top of your head, or what would you guess is the breakdown uh, in wells across the United States right now uh, that are horizontal versus vertical? Yeah, the majority of the wells getting drilled these days are going to be horizontals, shale wells, right? Uh, there are still operators drilling vertical wells. You know, a vertical well is going to be a lot cheaper to drill. I mean especially if you're in, in Kansas or, or Illinois and you only have to drill down a few thousand feet, you could drill a well for 250 to $400,000. Whereas a, a, a shale well up in like the Bakken is going to be, you know, two to two and a half million dollars to drill it. And then another two to two and a half to complete it upwards. And yeah, anywhere all in your, your per well cost is five to $7 million roughly. Whereas, you know, a conventional well, you can do that for a bit cheaper. Um, they also have very different decline rates between the two, but kind of the life of a well. Um, so, you know, you, 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 as the operator, you go and, you know, you work with the landman with your company and you go lease acreage with the landowner, you come to some sort of lease agreement. The landowner has their minerals, right? They give up some of their minerals and, and went to the, to the operator, the operator then comes in, leases those minerals, they get their you know, call it seven A's or whatever it is, they come to an agreement and then uh, they have so much time to drill their for first lease hold well, right? So you have to drill a well in a certain amount of time to hold the lease. The lease is going to be based on surface, right? Surface spacing. And so they'll come in, they'll drill their first well, they'll hold the lease once they have production and then they just got to keep that well in line. Now, some states have specific rules you have to maintain production you can't have so much uh, you can't have the well down for so long it's six months nine months 12 months it varies from state to state so that's an important factor too if your well goes it goes down you have to go and repair it right if if it's like a really bad failure, you might have to go and drill another well too to maintain your lease so every state's a little bit different uh, and then like down down in texas where, you, where operators will come in and lease like they'll work with the landowner and lease an entire ranch they'll actually have like continuous production requirements, continuous drilling requirements so that the landowner actually, or the driller has to keep drilling wells at a certain rate to maintain a certain level of production. And it's all spelled out in the lease. Uh, these contracts get very, very interesting. Um, there's all kinds of languages, all kinds of different ways to appease both parties and make it a, you know, ultimately beneficial 
opportunity or venture for both companies. Um, but yeah, so you get your lease, you lease the, lease the land, and then you need to develop an APD. Or you get an APD with the, with the state or the BLM or you know, the feds. And then now you have a, you know, <laughs> approval to drill a well. Oh, okay. APD is approved production. Permit or something like that. Okay. All right. Yeah, that's what it is. It's just like the paperwork says, yeah, you can go drill a well. So you work with the state on that or the feds. So you get your, you get your, uh, you get your permit, you go drill your well, and then you have to come in and complete it. You complete it. Same. While this is all going on, you know, guys like myself, we're out building the facilities, uh, getting surface stuff all set up, getting the pipelines built. And then uh, once the well's been completed, then they will they will start flow back. They'll have their IP initial production, bring the well online, and then it'll start to produce. They'll usually have a flowback period for days to upwards of weeks to allow that well to clean out, gather data on the well. My mic just changed there. Wait a second. You there? Yep, I'm sorry. Can you hear me? Yeah, sorry. My my wife just put her AirPods in it and picked up on my computer real quick. Um, oh, no worries. It's all good. So we're talking about flowbacks. That's where, that's where I lost you. That's where it cut out. Flowbacks for days to a couple of weeks to basically determine. Yeah, days, days, days to weeks to allow the well to clean up, especially on a shale well. Um, you just pump down 5, 10 million barrel of water into this well. And so, you, you know, when that well's coming back online, it's going to be a lot of water. So you need to get that water out of it so that the oil can start to flow into it. So that's the whole process of, you know, a purpose of flow back. And then while you're doing that, you're collecting a lot of initial production data to see, like, how's this well going to do, right? And then that, then that information is getting over to the reservoir engineers. Then they're developing a type curve for the well, updating their type curve if they already have one. And then updating their assumptions, and then all that all that data then ends up feeding into like the planning group at the company, right? The planning group is grabbing all this information, coming up with uh, kind of long term production profiles. What's the cash flow of the company going to be? And that's becoming more and more important these days with uh, drillers trying to focus on free cash flow drilling or self sustaining drilling. So rather than go to Wall Street or some other firm and getting money to drill wells, which is becoming more and more expensive. Interest rates have gone up on a lot of oil and gas companies. They're, um, they're trying to fund their own operations via free cash flow drilling. So they're sustaining their own drilling program um, with their own money. And a lot of shale, it's really interesting. I, um, you know, a lot of shale companies, they can make 40 to 80% returns on a well and they can pay them off in months. But the, that kind of leads into the choke management strategy that we can talk about later. But um, yeah, it's nice to see that they're not depending on Wall Street capital and they can attempt to bootstrap their, their own expansion, which is probably what should be the, the go-to strategy, right? If you, I mean, I get getting, raising a bunch of capital, drill a bunch of wells, make a bunch of money, but a lot of that depends on the price of a barrel of oil being pretty elevated or at least flat from when you drill, correct? Yeah, the big piece too is... Um... It's all about timing too, right? Because you don't you don't just drill a well and, and complete a well, and you don't just start start a program, right? Typically, what you will you will do is you will front load a drilling program with um, drilling ducts, drill but uncompleted wells. So the duct count is actually really it's really insightful. So the two things when you want to look at future production, you look at duct count 
rig count, and then also the number of uh, frack crews or frack spreads out in the field. So all three of those things with, you know, how prevalent shale is in the, in the overall U.S. production, those three things all feed into kind of what future production is going to look like. Uh, so anyways, you will, you'll actually, in order to decouple your, your frack from your, uh, from your drilling program so that you have a little bit of a buffer, a spring, in case something goes wrong or whatever, you pinch off a well and you have to, you know, get a new APD and move over and drill another well instead of that first one because you lost your drill string or whatever. What you'll do is you'll go out and you'll build up a duck inventory. You'll start drilling uh, a number of wells and so that the completions can move at their own speed. And it gives you a little bit of a buffer room. So all these all these different moving pieces work in conjunction to meet schedule. Because things go right. I mean, as, as uh, much as there's been, there's been, there's been learned in the, the shale industry, uh, things still happen, right? It's the oil field. Stuff breaks. We have weather. Remote areas. Let's talk about some stuff breaking and how weather comes into play. Like what are, what are some of the small edge cases that... And one would need to take into consideration or something that happens that yeah, I mean, like, you can't plan for. Here in North Dakota, it's interesting because, like, you know, it's really remote. Um, you're planning on stuff showing up on a certain date, and then there's weather between here and Texas where a lot of the equipment's coming out of, right? And your your ESP doesn't show up or something goes wrong. That is just pretty regular. Or a big thing that we run into here in North Dakota, we have frost laws. So you can't, you can't, uh, you can't move the rig for a couple of weeks while the frost gets out of your own. And so you have to have that, have to have that rig kind of already set up in a certain area where, you know, you can drill for a few weeks, right. With only having to move it on certain, certain types of roads. Cause there's all, there's going to be all these road restrictions, or you got to pay a pretty hefty, hefty fine to uh, destroy and probably rebuild the road. Right. And, and the state will work with you and the counties will work with you on that. If they already have a road that's destroyed, they might be more willing to, to wheel and deal with you a little bit. Right. But there's all this stuff kind of goes into planning when you're coming up with a long-term uh, 12 and 24-month and five-year drill schedule. All that stuff gets planned out. And so uh, the planning department is kind of one of the most critical departments, really, at, at a lot of shale, shale oil and gas companies because it's, it's critical to get a long-term plan and then have all the different all the different scenarios run. So essentially they're running a Monte Carlo simulation on oil prices. And so they need to know, okay, if oil's at 50 bucks, we if we maintain this production, here's how everything's going to look out for cash flow. We can fund our operations, everything else. And then that $65. And so the, you know, management's asking all these what is scenarios and they're uh, asking the planning group to continually run all these different scenarios. It's really interesting. I, I was across the hall from that team, so I didn't have to do too much, but for me, it was the question like, okay, what is that? What does that mean for gas capture? Can we actually produce all these wells and meet gas capture and be compliant with the state? So then I would, Get the, I'd get the gas results from their plan and then run all these my own scenarios, right? Okay, if pipeline doesn't get constructed, capacitor station doesn't get constructed, gas plant doesn't get constructed, and then looking through all these scenarios um, myself and then developing a gas capture plan and profile for the company. That's a good natural segue into like what happens after you drill decline curves, right? Because like, when you drill... A well, an oil well, right? A lot of gas comes out too, like a lot of gas and, and up front. And so that, I guess that was your job was to figure out how to maintain or manage that gas that was coming out when you're drilling wells, whether it be putting it in a pipeline, putting it in a jail unit, putting it in a generator that would be used to mine Bitcoin or create electricity to mine Bitcoin. 
you're smiling. Am I wrong here? Yeah, we'll probably tackle both of those, both the uh, choke management and the uh, the decline curve piece together, I guess, because they kind of go hand in hand in a lot of ways. So it all kind of depends on the goal too of the company. Um, there's a couple different theories on like why you'd want to use choke management on a shale well and why you wouldn't. Um, you know why you wouldn't. And some of the theories going around are profit and sand losses and crushing. So the, the theory is like if you bring that well on too fast, that piece of propent or sand that you have trapped in that fracture will become dislodged and flow into the well. And then that fracture that you just created that you spent all that money to create will collapse. So that 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 fracture where that was oil was going to oil and gas and water were going to travel through is no longer there. So then you're no longer going to be able to access that production. So that's the that's one theory. Another one is you know um, a few companies have spent a lot of time doing a lot of work on this, but there's been you know you'll see a lot of increased erosion and uh, erosion on your vertical and your lateral. So as you're bringing that mixture back at flowback, there's a lot of sand that's coming with it, and can you think of it like um, how erosive sand can be that's coming back on that well at you know 10 20 feet per second it'll chew steel apart um, a lot of companies will have to actually put in sand separators at the wellhead especially in oklahoma it's a big thing i'm um, having to put the sand separators at your wellhead because the sand will actually eat through your choke it's it's wild to see you have a extremely expensive choke that you just bought right and it's got like tungsten carbide trim and it's like super fancy thing is valve you got essentially valve choke and then like you'll watch the sand just chew it apart in days right <laughs> just complete wild and you look at it and, like there's like nothing left it's just like holy cow um so yeah it, every and every asset's a little bit different so that's like one one reason why you'd want to like choke your well back now if you're on a gas well um essentially choke management can be really important because if you produce the well too fast you're not going to re- recover as much gas you'll have a lot of issues down the road um you have, to design, you have to meet the pipeline limits. So that's another reason you use choke management. If your pipeline can only handle so much gas, oil, and water, sometimes you'll choke back to, to kind of stay in line with that. Or if you have facility constraints, right? If Old West didn't size the facility right and your heater treater is way too small, then you have to choke back for that too. So there's all these different reasons you're thinking about. But a couple of reasons why you wouldn't want to choke. Um, ultimately, you know, a dollar today is worth more than a dollar tomorrow. And if you're if you're funding free cash flow drilling, you want to produce that well as fast as possible because that's more dollars in your pocket that you can then turn around and put behind the bit for lack of a better term. And then that's more and more and more returns and it'll couple on itself. Um, and that can be really important when you're, when you're doing um, self-funded drilling. You have, to, you have to have money in time to, to pay all your bills, right? And, uh, and pay for that next drilling rig to move over to blah, blah, you know, some other location or whatnot. Another thing that's really interesting too, um, one thing that came up when I was in, attending some training in Houston, one of the uh, very educated reservoir engineers was explaining kind of like what's happened in some of the other shale reservoirs, like on the, on the wet gas side and um, operators not targeting the right wellhead or bottom hole pressure. And so what would happen is if they didn't maintain, if they didn't, if they didn't practice a choke strategy, they would actually allow the pressure, the bottom hole pressure to drop too quick. And if you look at your phase envelope, it's kind of shaped like, um, Kind of like that. Can't show your the listeners, obviously. Question: But what you end up? Yeah, kind of like a, well, it's it's an envelope. It's kind of like shaped like a upside down C. Mm-hmm. And so, normally, when your bottom hole pressure is high, you're in the um, like dense phase region. But if you dense or all gas region, but if you drop into the two phase region, if your pressure drops too fast, 
you'll actually end up in a two-phase envelope and you'll start to form liquids down hole. And that, that those, those gas vapors can only lift so much liquids with them up the well. So it's possible you could actually form liquids in your lateral and then they never get produced because the gas will just float over the top or the vapor, you know, the natural gas vapors will just float over the top into the well and just flow up. So you actually end up leaving a bunch of NGLs down hole, propane plus material, which is valuable, right? I mean, uh, NGL pricing is 30 to 35 bucks a barrel right now, depending on where you're at. So that's, that's a lot of money, especially when gas is only $2.70 for Henry Hub. So that's another reason why you'd want to use a choke management strategy to uh, be intelligent about how you produce your well. Now I've got my Bitcoin miner cap on thinking of what well choking. Is it true that if you choke a well, you'll actually be able to get more productive gas out of it over its life cycle? Cause you're not having, and I don't want to say entropy, whatever leak. Uh, if you're just letting it come full bore after an IP, and like you said, the dollar today is worth more than the dollar tomorrow, but a sat tomorrow, maybe worth more than a sat today. Uh, if Bitcoin's appreciating. And so like the, in the context of drilling wells with the intention of using the gas to create electricity to mine Bitcoin, does that sort of change the dynamic of an operator with that particular intention and how they approach choking a well? I think it probably depends on your Bitcoin strategy, right? Now, if you're like just holding on to your Bitcoin I mean, just letting it sit in your kind of your wallet, right? Then it, it probably doesn't. I mean, then you'd want to have a choke strategy. You just want to kind of build out your infrastructure and whatever size mining setup you want. And you just match your gas flow to that. Now, if you're like, essentially, I'm, this is way outside my realm, obviously. But if you say you're putting your, your, your Bitcoin into a Bitcoin bank and they're paying you interest on it and they're wheeling and dealing with your Bitcoin on the side, you still have access to it, your keys or whatever. Um, then you're gaining interest, then obviously you'd want to mine as much as you could now, right? But then there's a, there's a, there's a happy medium. You don't want to build some huge, massive mining infrastructure if there's going to be natural decline. So what you'd want to do is find out what the optimal size, size is, figure out what your, your tight curve is for your well and what your EOR is, and then kind of fund those two things together and find an optimal, optimal point, right? So let's, okay, we'll chuck the well back and we'll produce... I've earned MCF a day for the next 10 years, right? Because the well can handle that. You, you learn that as you're doing your flow tests and everything else, right? Yeah. That's exactly what I'm thinking. Um, yeah, in terms of the interest products, like, eh, they're getting 6%. Bitcoin's growing at like 220% compound annual growth rate. That's this compound annual growth rate over the last 10 years. Like, is that 6% worth it? Do you want to stack more sats? Yeah, I guess you'd have to you'd have to do the math of if you choke it back, could you stack more sats from mining than you would in the long term than you would make like six percent annual return, compound annual return if it if it stays at that. I have a feeling those interest rates will get compressed a little bit even more as uh, as people flood into those markets. So now I'm just doing Bitcoin math in my head. Yeah, that's like way out of my wire realm i've just learned about like pancake swap sushi swap and like alpaca or something like doing some reading on the side to get a little more educated in that area but it's still kind of like doesn't make a lot of sense to me yeah i know those aren't the right ones but that stuff uh wes 
Don't or as Jason, Jason, Jason's pieces, his, his term for Ethereum was pretty funny. Who's? On the podcast that Todd was on. Todd was on a few weeks ago. Whose podcast? Jason. Go check that one out. Uh, from Crude Life? Jason's pieces. Yeah. What did Tom say about it? I haven't had a chance to listen to that one yet. Uh, he, was, he was very polite. Yeah, I mean, I, I'll be less polite. It's all scammers just trying to Bitcoin is trying to de-financialize the world like all these obscure DeFi hyper collateralized flash loans in my opinion who knows could be wrong could be wrong could be wrong but uh, it just seems like you're, you're recreating you're not even recreating you're creating more complexity in this financial system and Bitcoin's whole raisin de tarte is to get us away from that yield chasing complex financial product world. Yeah. Going back to choke management, sometimes you want to just use choke management to kind of manage the decline, right? Um, like a shale well will literally, tr- it'll drop 50 to 75% in production in the first year, right? So you'll bring a well on and it'll be producing like 2,500 up here in the Bakken upwards of like 5,000. I've seen a couple of wells that produce 10,000 barrels of oil, not BOE, barrels of oil in the first day. And it is a precipitous decline. So that, that same well will, uh, one year later, it'll be in anywhere from maybe 500 barrels barrels per day, probably, roughly, I guess. Depends on where it is in the Bakken. Core acres, that's probably what it'll be at. Maybe up to 1,200 on the high end if it, 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 it's it's got some life in it, right? Um, but you're just kind of managing the decline sometimes choke management and then other, other times you can kind of save yourself on artificial lift so um sometimes you know if you ultimately here's all i like to think of like a well right so that well starts out life it's got all kinds of hot air in it, right it's got tons of bottom hole pressure it will flow naturally so what i mean by that is the the if you open up the valve on top that 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 mixture is just going to come out right now eventually your bottom hole pressure is going to decline and with that two miles of vertical head of liquid that's sitting on top of that well, it can no longer breathe. It's kind of like putting a giant 45 pound, you know, at the gym, you put a 45 pound weight on your chest. It's a little bit harder to breathe, right? Now, if you swap that out and put a 35 pound plate on, it's easier, right? So the way to think of it is then you, you know, as you, if you produce your well too fast, you're just increasing the time it takes to get artificial lift out there, right? So you're eventually going to have to go put an ESP, which would be an electric submersible pump, Kind of like your sump pump in your house, you lower a uh, pump on the end of the tubing down 10,000 feet, stick it right there at the, the uh, right above the heel on the well. And you will, that, what, that pump actually helps pump the liquid to the surface and it reduces the, um, the back pressure on the well. So then the well can start to breathe again. And then so you'll put an ESP on there. They're rated for anywhere from 500 up to uh, 2,000 barrels a day. Offshore ones, obviously, a lot more than that, right? Um, offshore wells are giant wells they're spending tons of money and they're on they're in untapped reservoirs for the most part so tons of oil down there but um so you put your esp on there you'll run that for six months upwards of two years and so by using choke management you can kind of delay how long you need to um put an esp or the next form of artificial lift on right so that's another strategy why you want to use it or you want to have your esp run you don't want to do an ESP change out. So you try to kind of run it at whatever its peak peak efficiency is for as long as possible before you have to go out and put a rotoflex or a pumping heater out there. Mm-hmm. 
which right. have their have their own reliability. I mean, every piece of equipment has its own reliability um, associated with it, right? You're dealing with the rod pump. You're, you got rods that break, pumps, downhole pumps that break, tubing failure. If your rod rotator doesn't work, you might get a thin spot in your tubing. Production engineers kind of work through all that and kind of figure out what works best for their reservoir. What happens when a pump breaks 10,000 feet below the ground? Does it just get left there? Uh, no, not well, it could be left there. You don't want to do that, though. That's, that's pretty expensive. So then you, what you'll do is you'll move a workover rig out there. So think like a mini rig. So it's a, it'll have a 90-foot tower on it, usually. Sometimes 60-foot. depends on where you're at, which basin you're at. And it's got two draw works on it, so it's got a, a buckle. That's going to help lift stuff out of the well. That's what it is. Just a big crane. Think of it for lack of a better term. And so what you'll do is you'll move your workover rig out there. You will, uh, depending on your type of reservoir, you might have to put kill fluid in the well. And then you will um, start to pull, pull tubing or pull rods. And then you'll pull tubing after that. And you'll pull all those rods out and then the pump will be there at the end. And then you'll pull that guy out and you'll fix it, send it off to the pump shop, Weatherford, Baker Hughes, et cetera. They'll fix that thing up or even send you a new pump. They might have a new one ready to go. Depends on what your time frame is. Most of the time they'll have them ready to go. You'll just put that right on right away. Cause you don't, you know, work up a rigs, they've charged by the day rate or if it's 24 hour, they've charged them for 24 hours. So really you don't want to have any downtime. You do periodically, but ultimately want to get that well up online ASAP because then it's pumping and making money. Yeah. All right. Kind of like Bitcoin. It's like, you know, if you're, if your miners aren't running, you're not, uh, you're not, you're not providing to the, you're not providing hash to the, the pool and you're not making money. So, same idea. No, Uptime is key. Well, we got to bring it back to Bitcoin. Uptime is key. Makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. Back to decline curves. Another like what I'm trying to drill down on here is like how much waste, how much of that like is it's crazy amount of gas and oil coming out at one time. Like how much how much of those minerals get wasted or are not able to be captured? The, yeah. So on is you're not wasting oil typically, right? Yeah. The oil is going to get trucked or it's you know that's one thing to think about too is you know if, the, if your oil pipeline can only handle say that off the pad ten thousand barrels a day and you're producing at twelve thousand you need to truck off that two thousand barrels a day which is going to cost more than the pipeline so it's kind of finding a happy medium between those two right like okay well how can i maximize production but also keep my lease operating expense as low as possible so that's kind of what you have to think about but yeah i mean from a wasteful standpoint if you're um this is a term i like to use ripping wells open um and the gas pipeline can't handle it, you're, yeah, you are going to be wasting a natural gas resource and it's going to be flared into the air. It doesn't do any good. And that's why ultimately I think um, you got to do something. So in my case, when I was um, working in the patch, I'd be putting NGL units out there or uh, either work with GAM, put a, a Bitcoin mining setup out there to capture gas. There's a couple of different things you can do with it. You can generate power and try to sell the power to the grid, which it works in some states, especially in like Texas where they have a free market grid. You can probably sell your electricity for decent money. Here in North Dakota, we've got excess power. We actually export tons of our power to other states. We've got piles of renewable. We've got a bunch of coal plants. We've got a couple gas gas plants. Um, for us, they just aren't going to pay any money for producing power. There's a couple of people that have done it. Um, sometimes it makes sense, but ultimately it's a, it's a big risk and it's pretty long-term and a lot of operators don't want to make long-term commitments. They, they kind of only have a one to two year outlook. And anything over that, they get a little bit nervous because of, you know, as you, as we saw, the last downturn was in 
started in late 14, went through 16, things started to pick up in 17. And then obviously the COVID pandemic and, and OPEC had um, a situation last, last March and April, and we went through another one. And so you can see one thing that's been interesting and some of the projections are that these downturns are going to become shorter in length and more frequent. That's kind of what I've been reading lately. So I think that's why there is some uh, hesitancy on making anything else real, making long long-term commitments. What's the theory behind that? More frequent, less drawn out downturns. I think, I think the, uh, I think the theory is that um, globalization is kind of the big one behind it. Right now, you know, before, you know, the U S was kind of off on its own a little bit, right. It was getting impacted a little bit by other production, but now, as the U.S. starts to export oil into other countries, or our light shale oil, um, now we're going to become part of the, that globalization, right? Now we're more exposed to the world than we were before. When you're just importing crude, it's one thing, but when you're importing and exporting, then you, I think you have more exposure yeah. to the, the world markets. Or- more exposure to demand factors that are outside of our control. Mm-hmm. And a lot of, I mean, a lot of refineries will, They'll do swaps and they'll they'll do extended. They'll lock in prices if they can, right? Especially if they have a feeling that prices are going to go up. They'll lock, it, especially if they're importing crude internationally. They'll lock in a long term price, and but it all depends. Marketing is really interesting. There's that's a whole other beast. We can talk hours on that. Yeah, yeah, it's crazy. It's crazy to think about. And again, putting my Bitcoin cap here on here. At scale, deploying mining operations at the well pad. Do you see that affecting drilling at all? Does it increase the incentive to drill? Does it increase the incentive to choke wells and take your time because you have a supplemental revenue stream uh, via Bitcoin mining? Does it not change anything? Is it had a benefit? I think a couple things. Um... I think the first one, I mean, I'm thinking for my, with my Bakken hat on here right now. If, if you're an oil and gas producer and you don't make a lot of money off the gas, you don't really have a whole lot of incentive to wait for the gas company to, the midstream company to finish either upgrading their gas plant, building a compressor station, or building a pipeline on pad. Um, you know, there's a lot of landowners that haven't had the best experiences with pipelines here in North Dakota. Um, either their fences weren't rebuilt, they lost cattle, all kinds of stuff that they've had to deal with on their property and North Dakota is really pretty secluded, right? So if you're a landowner and you're not used to seeing people all that often. And all of a sudden you've got a whole pile, you got pipeline crew out there ripping through your land. It, you know, it's a lot of, it's a little bit different for them. Right. I think some people got, some landowners got burned over the last two booms. Um, and there's probably some uh, hesitancy to build, you know, a lot more pipelines on their land, especially if they don't have, if they don't own the minerals, they really don't gain anything other than the surface use agreement, which they get paid for on an annual basis, and then the pipeline easement. And easements are, they, you know, 300 to 500 bucks a rod. It's pretty standard, but I mean, I've seen as high as 1,500 bucks a rod out here because the landowner's like, I don't want it out there. I'm going to throw out some random number and see if it sticks. And it's, it's starting to stick because operators want to. There's so much money to be made by producing that barrel of oil. They'll kind of do whatever it takes to get that pipeline built. And so that, and that kind of leads into the next comment that, um, by mining Bitcoin on pad, it kind of reduces your reliance on the pipeline company. You don't have to wait for them to have that negotiation with the landowner. 
you can bring that well to market sooner because I mean, it takes time to build all that stuff, right? I mean, it takes upwards of six months to get a right-of-way easement. Um, we had spent up to, you know, 18 months at times working on right-of-way easements, just the easement. And it was a ton of wheeling and dealing, you know, with the landowner. Like they did not want these three pipelines put through. We're going to do it in oil, water, and a gas line all through the same area because the existing infrastructure was an undersized. And so I was working with the three companies saying, okay, what do we need long-term? Like there's this much more drilling we got to do in this area. And this is, this is a one and done situation. We can, uh, we will never come back through here, build another pipeline. So we need to size this thing right. And so it's kind of like, okay, well, a six inch would work. And then I'm like, well, what, if we, what happens if we accelerate? If these wells are as good as they're gonna, they're supposed to be, we might be drilling faster. And I was like, well, okay, maybe we'll go with an eight inch or a 12 inch or 16. And everyone kind of figured out what their final number was. And then we went to the line and said, here's what we want to do. He still wasn't like real on board. And we're like, okay, we will go build you. We will, you have your two tracks through the, off through your ranch. We will make it a gravel road, right? So that you could have like big rigs going on this thing. And that was kind of the last little bit that, you know, and then we followed his calving season. We're out of there on a certain date. We had all these construction stipulations and just, it was all well spelled out, but it was, it took a lot of planning. We had tons of engineers and linemen involved. And it took an extended period of time to get built out. Now that's where Bitcoin's not kind of nice, right? At least on the natural gas front, you can eliminate one of those three pipelines and oil and water, you can truck. You can't truck natural gas, and not, at, least, at least not reliably. You can press it into CNG and L NGL, then truck it off. But those don't have great reliabilities here with our wonderful climate here in North Dakota, um, even in the banana belt part of the state. Uh, so that's kind of where Bitcoin fits into that. You can now eliminate one of the three pipelines and you can now drill at your own pace. I think that's where, uh, you know, for operators that don't want to have exposure to Bitcoin themselves, they just, you know, work with a Bitcoin mine company like GAM and, and uh, work out some sort of deal on the gas, whatever that might be, free gas, paper gas, et cetera, figure that out. And then, yeah. Wes, yeah, I have to interject. Mine we've, yeah. been told, we've been told not to refer to ourselves as GAM or Great American Mining. Um, we can't shorten it. We got to say it, say Great American Mining every time we do it. Oh, okay. Yeah, I wasn't being the memo. Here's so, the, uh, here's the memo. I <laughs> got it. Notes taken. Um, yeah, so that's kind of where the, the, uh, where it's where the, the Bitcoin thing fits into that whole, that infrastructure build up piece. It does, uh, it eliminates one of the, constraints in an operator's ability to produce a well as fast as they probably like, right? Like I was saying earlier, a dollar today is worth more than a dollar tomorrow. You'd rather bring on that well sooner than later because you know what the oil prices are going to be in the short term. Your, your outlook in the, and you know, further out, it gets murkier and murkier as you look further and further out, right? I mean, everyone's looking into their crystal ball and trying to make predictions, but, you know, as I mentioned earlier, well, gas has become some, so globalized over the last 10 years. Um, and so we have even more interconnected than ever. And as these, as different countries become more interconnected, um, as we see with the pandemic and supply chains and everything else, it, uh, you'd rather have a little more, you'd have a lot more confidence doing something in two weeks than in a month or six months, a year, et cetera. Yeah. I wonder though, it's like the pendulum of globalization swinging back towards Like more local production, manufacturing, 
I don't know. Like, does that change? Yeah, it's interesting. Oh, I kind of wondered about that too. If we're going to be kind of like back into the 1920s when uh, there was a a lot of um, call it xenophobia and fear of going international and just kind of focus on yourself. Seems kind of like we were maybe doing that under the previous administration, but we'll see what the, the new one brings. It's, it's really hard to say. It is. So no one's going crazy. You ready for 43% uh, capital gains tax? I saw that. That was, uh, it's not looking too good, but. No, but it, uh, gloss over that. But back to what we were previously talking about, like, like last year really highlighted like our vulnerability because of globalization, right? Like we, we can't make PPE here. We can't make electronics here. That's becoming really obvious. Um, the need potentially for chip foundries to be built and running on North American soil. Uh, we have a lot of concentrated supply risk. Over the last 50 years, we basically hollowed out the middle class via trying to force the dollar as a U.S. dollar reserve system in the world and or as the reserve currency system in the world, excuse me. And Triffin's dilemma seems to be playing out where in order to ensure that the dollar is the reserve currency of the world, you have to flood countries that have cheap labor with dollars. So you have to buy their goods, China mainly, Vietnam, Philippines, all these countries with dollars and buy their goods and forgo producing those goods in American soil and that manufacturing. That's why we've seen the death of the manufacturing sector in the United States, right? And is the, the thirst to, to ensure that the dollar is the reserve currency of the world. And are people starting to realize like, hey, maybe that's not in our best interest. We have a lot of social incohesion in the country right now. There's a lot of people who have been left behind and forgotten, particularly in the Rust Belt where manufacturing used to happen. Um, does the pendulum swing back? Does this even have anything to do with why we we have this this episode that we're doing right now? I don't know. I'm just thinking out loud here, Wes. I'm just rambling. Yeah, I mean, the K-shaped recovery, right? Um, I mean, ultimately, I think having jobs here in the U.S. are good, especially like one of the, the newest buzzword that's going out there is like a clean barrel of oil, right? Who can produce a, a barrel of oil cleaner? And that's why I'm always like pro-American oil because we've got strict regulations here, you know? Um, EPA is all over it. There's emissions requirements. There's all kinds of strict rules. And I guarantee other countries do not have the same level of strict rules. I'm sure, yeah, in Europe, they probably do. But as we look elsewhere in the world, I don't think the, the rules are on the same the same level and so that's i think where we're going to see things go in the future um it's going to be a competition to see who you know as these resources become more and more stranded who can produce the resource that's the cleanest right and that's where i see the united states and shale kind of leading the way or even or a lot of our what's left of our conventional reserves um because we can produce a, a relatively clean barrel because of because of the regulations in place, and I think you know those are probably going to get even more stringent, and that'll be more incentive to produce even cleaner barrel. So I think that's where things are going. Um, and then the the other you know huge benefit of that is you put Americans to work, right, in remote places that have been you know left behind, right, with this K-shaped recovery that didn't weren't heavily invested in the stock market in 
had huge returns last year. Like, you know, they've got other things to worry about. Yeah. Making a truck payment, you know, paying for their kids' football equipment, et cetera, right? Yeah. Buying buying sushi on Uniswap. <laughs> that jab at me? Yeah, it was. Yeah, it was, Wes. No, I'm kidding. Yeah, it's... I don't, even know where to, I don't even know how to buy it. Like went on their website and like it was not clear on how, how to even buy it. Uh, and even pancake swap, I was like, so where do you go to? Oh, there's a couple different wallets I can use. Oh, I didn't see this on the one app I use. Huh. Okay, Let's do a little more research, but it's very complicated from what I understand. Um, back to sounds. Like, what was that? I said sounds like, and I'm just this guy, so I don't know. <laughs> so to bring it back. To the reason we're doing this for anybody who's listening to this right now, go listen to the first episode recorded with Wes. Uh, during that episode, we sort of agreed, like, hey, we're going to pick particular topics uh, throughout the, the oil and gas operations um, world and try to explain them. So today we talked about drilling, horizontal versus vertical, choking wells, we're talking about decline curves. What should we end it on here, Wes, as we wrap up this hour? I don't know. That's a good question. Yeah, I'll be interested to see kind of what's coming on the pipeline. Um, so, you know, Keystone XL got canceled, right? And uh, right now we've got 16 rigs here in North Dakota drilling, uh, making money. And I think, uh, I think we'd be at 30 rigs if we weren't for, if it wasn't for kind of the whole DAPL situation that's Dakota Access Pipeline, which is kind of, causing some hesitation to, to go full more, right? So it'd be really interesting to see what happens in the next few weeks as that um, federal judge weighs on that case and um, what the Army Corps of Engineers and everything else that comes from it. Um, so what's going on? Yeah, I'm not quite sure where things are going. So like Keystone particularly, is that just built and now it's just going to stay there? and like just Keystone partially built. So they had, you know, or TC Energy, not TransCanada. That's the former name. Um, TC Energy was slowly building it out over over time, and they were working on the last little bit, and they needed a presidential permit. So um, what they were going to need to do is get a, a permit from the president to for the border crossing at the border. And typically, it spells out like, "Yep, you have essentially." It's kind of like in conjunction with an easement, it spells out the either diameter or the volume flow rate across it, and a few other things. I'm not a permitting guy, so it's a little bit outside my wheelhouse, but. That was revoked essentially, and I, I kind of joked. I was like, "Well, if I was TC Energy, I would just build the pipeline up to both sides, and then build a build a, build a railroad across it, and just railroad the oil across every day, and just unload, put it on a tanker from a from a tank into a tanker, and then take it 15, minute, 15 miles across the border, put it back in the pipeline, and send it across." You know, <laughs> but <laughs> that's what I joked about doing. And then you know, obviously, all the all the folks around there won't be real happy when there's um, what seven hundred to eight hundred thousand barrels a day of railroad, you know, rail cars going going by. Yeah. And the permit will probably get through pretty quick. But um, yeah, so that got revoked. Unfortunately, um, they had already bought a lot of the pipe, had put a decent amount on the ground too. So that's just kind of dead in the water. I'm I'm assume they'll appeal it, but time will tell. They might just wait wait another four years. I mean, they've been waiting how long now? They might just wait. Four years to see if there's any um, changes in the political winds, 
and see if they can have it go through that. I mean, it makes sense. Ultimately, I mean, it kind of hurts the American economy too because um, the crew that they were going to transport on that line is heavy Canadian crew that usually trades at like a five to fifteen dollar barrel deficit to WTI. So the Texas refineries along the Gulf are set up for that type of crude. Essentially, they can get cheap crude. And then they can make that into gasoline and diesel and export those products. So it actually helps the Texas economy in a lot of ways, um, being able to source cheap crude. And they're going to get a lot cheaper than they'll get uh, Mexico Mayan, which trades on international. And what they've actually been doing lately is um, they've been importing a lot of crude out of out of uh, Peru. They have they produce a heavy crude as well. So they've been importing crude out there. And uh, I think they still have um, restrictions on Venezuelan crude, which is another heavy one. But... Ultimately, we kind of just hamstring ourselves. I mean, it would help helped our friends in the north too, right? Canada would have done a lot better. I know uh, Alberta still hasn't recovered from the first crash back in uh, fourteen and fifteen. They still have, I think, they lost like twenty percent of the employees, and they're expecting to lose upwards of 50 percent of the remaining jobs in the next um, ten years or so. So I was reading in the paper here not too long ago. So I mean, ultimately, it would have been it would have been good, and it would produce a lot of a lot of taxes. Every single town along the way that has a pump station in it, they, uh, they get a lot of, a lot of taxes. I think um, the other pipeline company I used to work for each pump station, we paid upwards like one and a half to $3 million in taxes to the local city and, and county per pump station. And we had a pump station every 30 to 45 miles. So it kind of hurts the local economies along the way. And I know uh, quite a few towns along South Dakota, people, these business, small business owners were kind of planning on, you know, Planning on, on this construction work going through and, you know, have these pipeliners move on through and making some money along the way and have like one last big final hurrah where they could make enough money and retire, hopefully, right? Or be able to sell their business and move on. So it's really sad that it got, it got canceled, but it is what it is, I guess. We'll see if anything comes out. And kind of dapples the next thing that's coming along the pipeline, right? Um, if that, if that, if they, Tell them to can't to shut the line down and they tell they finish the entire NEPA and get a new essentially crossing easement for the Missouri River along uh, Lake Hawaii. That could shut the line down for years. And pipelines don't do well in start stop mode. So essentially, you run the line and then you have to go pick the entire line out, get all the oil up, put corrosion inhibitor in it, and let it sit for a couple of years. And then you have to go back and fill all back up with the oil and do new integrity runs and check the condition of the line. And we're talking tons of money to do all this work. And, um, it's just because of bureaucracy, I guess, which is kind of sad, but it is what it is. I'll say it is. See where it goes. Disgusting. It'll it'll hurt produ- it'll hurt producers in North Dakota. So I started um, in the upstream world right around when right before Dapple started up, and the differentials were like seven to fifteen bucks a barrel. And then when the line went on into service, that differential got cut from you know seven to fifteen down to like five to seven, right? So we were on par with WTI, which means Bakken producers can then be competitive with Texas producers, right? They don't have to take such a big hit on their oil. Yeah. Oh, sorry, buddy. Got a baby crying in the background. Yeah, yeah. Just talking about WTI and gasoline prices and how the Keystone pipeline particularly would have helped them. Like in the last year alone, since April 20th, last year, April 20th, 2020 to April 20th, 2021 WTI crude up 210% gasoline up 182% Brent crude up 163% heating oil up 
So I think if you, you want- got to be a little numbers. That was uh, right around the negative oil date, which was 420-2020. That's a good point. Um, That's a good point. Where I hit like WTI hit negative 40, 43, somewhere in there. Okay. So I got to be a little careful on those. That pre-pandemic, we were in that 60 to 62 range. So okay. we're before covered on crude, crude pricing and gasoline pricing starting to go up. Um, I'm sure California will have $3.50, $4 gas here pretty soon. Yeah, that's a good point. But like, wasn't that negative contract only like the May futures? Like what was the spot crude price at that point? Spot. Yeah, those futures, but I think that's how it's... Uh, that's a, a lot of the crews being traded on futures, right? And yeah. the reason why negative is you WTI is the only contract you have to take physical possession of the contract. And if you're buying 100 barrels, you have to take 100 barrels. So if you had a tank somewhere, it would have been pretty great, right? You just went and filled your tank up and got paid to fill it up and uh, just store it out for five, six months. Cost you what, 25 cents a month to store a barrel and then move it back on the pipeline, another five to 10 cents for that, that fee to get it out of the terminal. And then uh, put it on a pipeline for a couple bucks, you know, two to five bucks a barrel, ship it off somewhere else, sell it, make a pretty good return. Yeah. But yeah, the, the WTI, that's why I went so negative is because people had, were not able to take physical possession of this, this crew because they weren't really watching all these tanks fill up with the pandemic. And it's like, holy cow, where are we going to store this stuff? Are we going to be like um, the last crash where they had tankers offshore? Like, you know, Iran had like, I don't know, 50 to 100 tanks offshore just sitting out in the, uh, in the golf off of iran yeah the um well, crude, just waiting yeah you had interactive broker plebs trying to figure out if they could uh find find a place to to actually hold the the oil i would have for me i would have went and bought a bunch of rail cars and just filled the rail cars up and stick on like a dead track somewhere yeah, but do. i don't know how legal that is or you can do it or what but it'd be an interesting idea Interesting idea, but do you think some some pleb probably sitting in a an apartment building in New York City is going to be able to do that? Doubtful. They can try. Yeah. I hope they have uh, the proper PPE and knowledge and understand the risks. Right? It's not exactly a safe product. It's crude oil. It's it's dangerous if not handled with the respect it's due. Right? Yeah, it's unlikely that they understand all the risks. Yeah, I mean everyone. Look up, uh, is it Lock? I'm gonna butcher this, but uh, the tain- a town in like Eastern Ontario, uh, there was a big accident that happened like in 2013 or 2014 where a Bakken oil train got loose, went into town, resulted in I think 47 or 49 deaths. So I think everyone should look at that and kind of understand okay, it's, it's a hazard and that's why we need pipelines, right? Yeah, it's not a wall. Getting it off. <sighs> Yeah, and the thing is, pipelines aren't typically built through communities. Railroads are, though. Yeah. I've experienced You look at every North Dakota is like right along a rail track, rail, rail line, you know? Yeah. Why are pipelines so demonized? Do you think it's justified to any extent? Actually, no, it's, a, it's actually a, um, it's the playbook. So the playbook is, okay, ultimately the goal is keep it in the ground, right? And in order to keep it in the ground, you'd have to hire a smir- like an army of Smurfs to go out and shut all these wells in, day in, day out, right? Every day you'd have to go and sh- shut every well off, and then the operators go on the day and next day and turn them all back on, right? And this this process would just repeat itself. And there's like over a hundred thousand wells in the country, right? So it just it's not it's not realistic. So 
the whole the, the playbook is stop the artery that allows that product to get produced as efficiently and cost effective as possible. And that's what pipelines are. So by destroying the conduit to get that product to market, you inhibit its ability to get produced. Or you, you make it more costly to produce it, which hopefully will make it uneconomic to produce, and then it will stay on the ground. That's that's been the playbook for the last 10 years or so. That's why you see Keystone XL, Dapple, et cetera. Um, and a few other pipeline producers running into the same issues. And this and it's not just uh, oil pipelines, it's natural gas pipelines to do. I know on the East Coast, they're having a hard time getting a lot of natural gas pipelines built, which is a shame because New York could use a lot more natural gas. Um, I think they've actually, I've heard rumors that they ban building new natural gas um, furnaces and stuff in, in new buildings, right? I think they're switching them over to electric, which is even more scary because now you're relying even more on electricity and you've, um, for lack of a better term, you've, you've made it, you've went to one source and you just don't have, you're not, you're not, you're not got as many tools in your tool chest to handle issues, right? Yeah. Relying on unreliable energy sources. So when will the madness end? Just like frack, fracking in New York, there's a ton of, I mean, look in Pennsylvania, they could have the exact same thing going on in New York and banned it. It's really interesting too, like how the states work around that too. Like, um, like in Illinois, they have a fracking ban. And they, so they, frack, they, they have a ban on fracking in horizontal wells. And there's a water limit. So you really, the water limit makes it uneconomic. You could not make it work because you need more water in order to make the slick water frack or even a gel frack work. So what they, what they haven't banned fracking on vertical wells. So you can go and drill a vertical well and frack that one, but you just don't get the same, like we talked about at the beginning of the podcast, you don't, your exposure is just so much, it's a fraction of what you'd, you'd have before. But if the well's shallow and you can make the cost work, you just got to keep doing it over and over and over and over, right? Yeah, so less efficient. Which, and so, But someone's willing to do it if you can make decent money. Someone's, that's the cool part about free market is if, it's, if it makes money, someone's going to hop in and do it. Yeah, free market's a beautiful thing. Mm-hmm. Need these bureaucrats to, to get out of the way. And these yep. Well, Wes, it's been very educational. I have to run here. I think it was a good hour. I think people learned a lot. Yeah. I learned a lot. What are we going to talk about? Me now? too. Do you have any ideas? Yeah, I don't know. I'll think about that. I think uh, EOR and some of the other topics like that and kind of like the future of shale will be kind of interesting to talk about. You know, all the buzzwords floating around, clean oil, clean gas, et cetera. All right. That's the next topic, EOR, clean oil, clean gas. You heard it here. Or ask your, ask see if uh, they have any ideas. Yeah, I'm sure they do. I'm sure they do. And if you're listening. I'll probably take more than, I'll have to do a little more research and take more than two pages of notes for that one. Though. I think that those two, two pages were sufficient and thorough for, for the topics at hand today. If you guys are listening to this, if you're in the oil and gas world, if you're in the Bitcoin world, and you have a particular topic that you are interested in learning more about, tweet at us. Wes isn't on Twitter because he's a smart human being, but uh, you can tweet at me and I'll relay the uh, the information to Wes and we'll talk about it. You got anything else, Wes? Anything you want to end it on? Like a, a rally? Oh, I, hope it warms up. I hope it warms up. It's going to snow on Sunday. That sucks. It's yeah. Welcome to North Dakota. If you don't like the weather, wait five minutes. 
when uh when will it warm up for good there like june yeah probably may, late may early june somewhere on there but i wouldn't be surprised if we have 50 degree weather in june it happens every year lovely all right well i'm hoping it warms up for you uh i'm gonna put a yeah, you're not in i'm in austin right now it's like 85 degrees here today oh. toasty yeah jersey i don't think it's that that warm right now i think it's like 60 but um yeah i'm gonna post this on monday we'll talk eor clean oil clean gas on the next episode and i hope you enjoy your weekend enjoy your day enjoy your day um and good luck researching sushi, sushi and pancake just listen to yourself say that stuff like sushi pancake swap does it sound like the future of finance to you I don't know. I'm sure all the Bitcoin listeners are just cringing and eye rolling like crazy. But yeah, they are. I can, I can. But I read like it was like 17% return, which is kind of cool. Like that's like yeah, pretty good. But at the same time, bought some Bitcoin and it went up a thousand percent. So that's quite a bit too. That as well. Yeah. And you can look at the, we don't have to get into it, but you can look at the statistics and how many people actually use those products and how few addresses interact with that. And if you, really dig into it you're playing in a pool with whales who are just trying to suck that yield from you so you have to do something on tftc for me i'll listen to it well we we cover bitcoin only so we don't we don't dive into those topics and gamcast i can i can explain a little bit more in detail and get a little more leeway got here. it you'd scare some of your listeners way a bit yeah let's see what's going on <laughs> um all right that's it that's all we got enjoy your weekend Thank you for this information. Yeah, you too. I'm loving this series. So yeah. Far. We're going to do it more. And then uh, yeah, that's all we got. Come back for more Gamcast. Enjoy it, freaks. <laughs>